Well, open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. And for those of you who missed the, the introduction message uh, two Sunday nights ago, I believe it was, I would encourage you to get it because it'll help you. In that message, I walked through the, in detail the three, there's more than three, but the three most common positions on the kingdom of Christ. And I, I showed you why uh, you could take this passage naturally and consistently, and if you do that, you'll interpret it literally with a, a literal, earthly, thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ. We looked at the chronology of Revelation. We looked at the, the covenants fulfilled, both what is promised in the Old Testament and then what is promised in the New Testament and even as of today have yet to be fulfilled. And then we talked about the character of God, about him making a specific promise, him being a, a God of covenant, even determining, making decrees before the foundation of the world. And we saw all of that points to a real earthly kingdom where Christ shall reign. And we also quickly noted that while your position on the millennium is not a a gospel issue, it's not a heaven or hell issue, it's not a a matter of, of heresy per se, it's nonetheless important. It's surely something not to punt on. It's very clear that the Bible was given to under to be understood. I mean, that's why the Bible was was provided to us. It's revelation. I don't mean the book of Revelation. I mean it's revelation. It's given in language. It's given in context. It's given in time. And all of that was given to us to be understood. It's God revealing himself. And we know from Romans 1 and from Psalm 19 that because of the fall... Natural revelation is not enough. It is enough to reveal to us there is a God, there is a creator. And so everyone, all people, no matter where you're at, in the deepest, darkest jungles where someone has never seen anyone other than their relatives and clearly never heard about Jesus, the Bible says they're without excuse because they have a witness. And that's natural revelation, creation. And because of depravity, because they've been born in sin, the Bible says they suppress the truth that's being declared from the heavens without, without ceasing. They suppress that truth in their unrighteousness. And only through special revelation, the Bible, specific revelation, will they be saved. Because faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. And so through the Bible, then they understand who that creator is. They understand they're not right with him. They understand that that creator became his creation in the person, the Lord Jesus Christ, lived a sinless life, laid down his life, willingly on the cross, was buried and rose from the dead, and invites all to repent and believe in order to be, to be right with, with him. And so the Bible, which is what we're talking about, is is revelation. God wants you to know who He is, and He wants you to know what He requires, including the end, including what is called eschatology. In fact, Revelation declares we're blessed whenever we, whenever we read it. And so God hasn't made it too confusing for us to grasp, as you have been observing, as we've been walking verse by verse through 
through 20 chapters. Now, Revelation chapter 20, I think, is one of the greatest chapters in the Bible. I do. It presents, in summary, the events which relate to the millennial reign of Christ. You should, as I said last time, you should think of Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6, as, as like the cliff notes. And, and then the rest of the Bible is the, the book in, in detail. And you see in what is promised in the, in the Abrahamic covenant, and the Davidic covenant, and the New Covenant, and, and in the book of Ezekiel, and in Daniel, and all of the detail that's there... And then that's all condensed in six verses in Revelation chapter 20. It introduces the millennial kingdom of our Lord. And we said last time there were three primary views Christians have about when, where, or if the kingdom will come. And here is the little graphic that we, we put up. The, there's a premillennial Position, that's what we are. The second coming of Christ happens preceding, pre-millennia, pre-the thousand-year reign of Christ. Then there is the post-millennial position. And that is the second coming and the last judgment happens at the end of the, of the millennium. Christ reigns through the church for a thousand years and the millennium is ushered in by the church. Many Presbyterians, our founding fathers of the United States, were post-millennialists. And then there's the amillennial position, which is there is no millennium. The ah meaning there's none. Catholics, Lutherans, Anglicans, and many others typically take, take that position. And I showed you this picture of the coffee that helps you remember Pre-mill, post-mill, all-mill. Pre-mill, the coffee will be ground when Jesus comes and we'll enjoy it together with him in the kingdom. Post-mill, the coffee is being ground by the church and Jesus will come when it is ready. And the all-mill, there is no coffee. I am not all-millennial. <clears throat> yeah, 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 neither is Pastor Alley, that's for sure. Now, quite frankly, I don't really care about a theological position. I don't take the position that I do because I am Baptist, although I am proudly Baptist. I take the position that I do. What I care about is just letting the Scripture speak as much as I can without getting my presuppositions in the way. And whenever you do that, I think you see that the Bible teaches after Christ's ascension, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing this same Jesus that's taking up, taken up before you? He's going to come in like manner. After Christ's ascension, Jesus reigns in His church. The right hand of the Father, but He reigns in His church separate from the world. The church and the world are not mingled. He is saving a people for Himself, both Jew and Gentile, and He's bringing them together in one new man in the church, in his church. And this period between his first coming and his second coming, the Bible calls the, the latter days. The, the, it's the, until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. The Revel, uh, Romans chapter 11 tells us. And then God's future promises to Israel will be fulfilled. The tribulation period that we've been looking at in the book of Revelation is for the judgment of the unbelieving world. But it's also called the time of Jacob's trouble. It's for the preparation of Israel. 
where they will look upon the one whom they pierced and they will believe the ones that are still alive and go into the kingdom. Now, I've said I want to make it very clear. If you go to heaven, you go through Jesus Christ. And so sadly, any Jew today that rejects Jesus Christ and dies just because they're a physical child of Abraham doesn't get him into heaven. Let me say that bluntly. If you are a Jew or a Gentile and you die today rejecting Jesus Christ, you go to hell. There is no salvation in any other than through Jesus Christ. But God will preserve a remnant and he still has a plan for his people. And so the tribulation period will prepare them for that. And then he will come, they will see him and they will believe. And at the end of that period, just like we saw in Revelation 19, Christ is coming again and he will judge the earth and he'll begin his earthly kingdom. And the kingdom is literal and in the and in the future. And I think the chronology of Revelation clearly indicates that. We've, we've observed John seeing the king coming in Revelation 19, verse 11. He says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. And there he comes. The king comes in Revelation 19. And then he sees the kingdom in chapter 20 after verses 1 through 3 and verse 4 of Revelation 20. Then I saw thrones and they that sat upon them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony, because of the word of God. And on and on there is the kingdom. And we'll get to that verse when we get there. And then what follows in chapter 21 is a... The new heavens and the new earth. If you just take a, a, a natural chronology, that's exactly what, what you see in, in that order. And the covenants will be fulfilled as well. The covenants' fulfillment indicate a future kingdom that's coming. As we said last time, what's the last thing that the disciples said when, before Jesus ascends into heaven? It's now the time you're going to restore your kingdom to Israel, and Jesus doesn't say, you nodheads, I've been with you this long, or you're still talking about a kingdom. He says, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons when the literal kingdom is coming. You're going to be my witnesses until that kingdom comes. And so, during that time, the covenants will be fulfilled. During the period summarized in Revelation 20, in these few verses, hundreds of prophecies from the Old Testament we've fulfilled. The full extent of the Abrahamic covenant, which includes land, will be fulfilled. The Davidic covenant, which is an everlasting throne, will be fulfilled. Aspects of the Mosaic covenant. And then the new covenant for Israel, even though the new covenant is, is in force right now. Now, if the story of the Bible stopped after Revelation 19 and it skipped Revelation 20, you would have countless prophecies or promises unfulfilled. And so we're going to walk through the text tonight and just see exactly how God is revealing all of this to us. And so let's read Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6. Verse 1. It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss, and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil, and Satan 
and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would no longer deceive the nations, so that he would no longer deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. And after these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones and they that sat on them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image. So these are clearly tribulation saints and had not received the mark on their forehead or on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. So there is a early resurrection before the thousand years and then a resurrection after the thousand years. This is the first resurrection. Verse 6, Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Now, the starting point to interpret any biblical passage is the text itself, right? Everybody agrees with that? It's the text itself. And then the context outside of that. And we've walked through Revelation verse by verse for 20 chapters. And what is happening is, is very plain. We saw that from the beginning. John is writing what he sees. The things that are, the things that will be, and then the things that are coming. In chapter 19 and 20 reveal the return of the king and the establishment of his earthly kingdom. And what follows is the new heavens and the new earth. And chapter 19 ends with the battle of Armageddon. It's the climax of the day of the Lord that's been talked about all through the Old Testament. We end chapter 19, if you remember, bodies are strewn all over the Jezreel Valley from the judgment of the king coming and wiping them out. This is brought about by the second coming of Christ. And then the Antichrist and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire where they will dwell forever. So the... The Antichrist and the false prophet, those have been deceiving the earth and have been active during the tribulation period. They are laid hold of and they are placed in the the final judgment, the lake of fire. They'll never get out of the out of the, the lake of fire. And you say, well, where's the other person of the unholy trinity, the Antichrist and the false prophet? Well, Satan himself is addressed in our passage. Then having executed judgment on the earth, Jesus renovates the earth in verse 4 of chapter 20. We'll get there, and he sets up his kingdom. But if you look at Revelation 20, what comes after the destruction of his enemies in chapter 19 are two major events. Number one, Satan is bound. And you see that in verses 1 through 3. And number two... His kingdom reign and the saints reigning with him in verses 4 through 6. And so the outline is as follows. The coming earthly kingdom of Jesus Christ. You have the binding of the dragon, that's Satan, in verses 1 through 3. And then you have the reigning of Christ with his saints in verses 4 through through 6. 
And both of those are repeated over and over in those verses. Let's look, if you will, at the binding of the, of the dragon. Look at verse 1. It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. Now, John is introduced to another angel. And he sees him coming down out of heaven. So we go from the scene on the earth... The Jezreel Valley with all of the bodies strewn everywhere. We already had our eyes drawn to heaven to see the king coming on the white horse and those coming with him. All the armies gathered together. He speaks and they all are, are, are slain. The birds are invited for this great supper and this great feast. And now from earth our eyes are drawn back to heaven. There's a descent of an angel that's coming. And the angel has something in each hand. And John can see them clearly. Look at what it says in verse 1. He sees the angel coming down from heaven. He's holding a key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand. He has a delegated key. And he has a binding chain. Now, anytime you hear the Bible talking about a key, it has to do with God's authority. Um, that should be no surprise to us. You've read the Bible. It also should be no surprise to somebody who hasn't read the Bible. What do you, what do you see people doing all the time? You get the key to the city. It's a, it's a proverbial honor. You, you, you hold a special place. You have some authority in the city. You might remember in Revelation 1, verses 17 and 18, when John first sees the vision of Jesus, he falls before him. Like a dead man. And what does Jesus say? He says, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. And I was dead. And behold, I'm alive forevermore. And watch what he says next. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Now, what exactly is Jesus saying there? He's saying because of the resurrection, because of his work on the cross, the conquering of of sin and, and death, I have authority over death and the grave. This is what we rejoice in every time we have a funeral, right? I mean, it, it, it's what we read in 1 Corinthians 15. The, the grave no longer has, has a sting because of the resurrection. And Jesus says, I have the key. I have authority over that. You also might remember in Matthew 16, in Caesarea Philippi, whenever Jesus takes his disciples there, and he says, who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And you know, remember this very well. Peter answers and he says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus tells Peter, he gives him some keys, right? You remember that? Well, here it is in Matthew 16. And I also say to you that you are Peter, you're a small stone. And upon this rock, there's a play on words there, this foundational boulder of the gospel, this confession that you've just made. I will build my church, and the gates of, of Hades will not overpower it. And listen, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. This is the establishment of the church. It's talking about the church. 
Peter is given the keys. The church is given the keys. He says, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. The New American Standard does that interpretation very well. And then he says he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. That's our passage from this morning. Jesus is not public about his, the fact that he is the Messiah until that first Jewish trial. The keys are delegated authority. This is not as the Catholic Church teaches where, where Peter now has the right to act on his own. It's authority that is fixed by God himself. And you see that very clearly. If it was just the keys given, then you may think it is delegated authority. You have delegated authority, Peter, and you can do what you will with that delegated authority. But it's qualified. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have already been bound in heaven. That's the idea behind the original language. And whatever you loose on earth shall have already been and stand loosed in, in heaven. His delegated authority is boundaried by what heaven has already bound and what heaven has already loosed. And that's found in the Bible. The authority that the church has is the Bible. It's a delegated authority. So that's the only authority that we have, the only authority that I have. And it's a delegated authority. To the extent that I speak accurately from the Word of God, there is sovereign authority. I have no authority in and of myself. I couldn't raise a person from the dead if I wanted to. I couldn't fix your marriage. I couldn't do anything. But to the extent that I faithfully, or anyone, an individual person sharing the Word with someone else, to the extent that you speak what the Bible clearly says, commands, prohibits, or otherwise, there is sovereign authority. It is the voice of God, and people are accountable to it, and it does its work. And what's the passage that we love in Isaiah? His Word will not return what? Void. Why? Because it has authority. And we have that delegated authority. And Jesus describes that delegated authority as, as keys here. When I don't speak according to the Bible, it's sketchy at best. So here John sees this angel, and this angel has delegated authority. It has a key. He's holding a key, and that key fits into the abyss. It's Authority over the bottomless pit. And this authority is delegated from God himself because he's coming down out of heaven. But look at what else he has. He also has a great chain in his hand. The word is halusus, a chain. It's the same word used in Mark chapter 5 for the man possessed by demons. They tried to chain him. He was so out of his mind, so... So inflamed with demons that, that they, tried to, they tried to bind him and it wouldn't work. He'd break free of the chains. Now, I don't think you have to make this too complicated. Some will argue that, that this can't be a real chain because angels are immaterial beings and so is Satan. So a material chain can't bind an immaterial being. But that, that's not even the point. I mean, what's the point of a chain? What's a chain do? That, that's what what the Bible wants us to understand. 
It's not for show or for, for rattling. The purpose of a chain is to restrain. It coupled with that divine authority to use it, you can see it used in the, in the next verse. So, look if you would at verse 2. What's this angel do with this key that fits the abyss and this great chain in his hand? Verse 2. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Nothing difficult about that. You have delegated authority in the key, and you have something that restrains. And this angel is to apply both of these to the person revealed here. And who is this person? The first part of verse 3 details the angel doing that. The second part of verse 3 reveals the result of that binding. I'll show you that in a minute. But there's an identified person here, isn't there? It's Satan. And just to make sure that you don't miss it, he uses four biblical identifiers used for the devil. The dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil, and Satan. And he binds him for a thousand years. So the angel with delegated authority is to restrict. He lays hold of Satan and all of his minions that follow him, I would say. And he binds him. He fastens him for a specific period of time. The idea to lay hold and to, and to bind is he's held fast. He's, he cannot move. He can't, he's no longer free by his own volition. He's incarcerated. And verse 3 tells us that plainly, tells us where. Look at verse 3. He uses the key, this delegated authority, and this restraint... And he threw him into the abyss, and he shut it, and he sealed it over him. And notice the repetition for emphasis. He threw him in, he shut it, he sealed it. And the point here is this is not the halfway house. This is maximum security prison. I mean, he's not free to do anything. He's not deceiving, he's not roaming the earth, he's not doing anything. He's in a specific place for a specific period of time, and he is absolutely incarcerated by the authority of God and by the, the power of, of God. We have heard of this place, the abyss before, the abyssos or the bottomless pit. It's where demons are incarcerated, where they're waiting for that final judgment. Remember we, we saw in Revelation 19, the beast and the false prophet, they're thrown into the lake of fire. And they're never, they never get out of the lake of fire. That's the final place of judgment. You remember how we saw in Luke 16, another place, there is a temporary place of judgment, not like purgatory. It is, it's hell. It's, it's horrible. You can't even imagine how, how bad it is. But those who are in hell, a literal place, literal fire, no way to get out, hopeless, dark, that will, those will ultimately be brought out of hell. They'll stand before the great white throne judgment, and then they're going to be cast into the lake of fire, which was prepared for the devil and his angels. God never prepared that place for human beings, and yet that's where the damned go. Well, here is the, the bottomless pit, this holding place, if you will, 
for demons. And some of them, some of them are free to roam about the earth, according to Jude and Second Peter. And some of them are bound. It's mentioned seven times in Revelation, and it always, always references a place of incarceration for the demonic realm and the demon spirit. Do you remember whenever Jesus goes to the the shore of the Gadarenes? I mean, this is an amazing miracle. He's cast out a demon here and a demon there. He walks into the synagogue at Capernaum, and there's a demon-possessed man in there. And just the very presence of the Lord, he does nothing. The demons reveal themselves. They begin to cry out, and Jesus casts them out. Well, there is this pinnacle miracle where there are thousands of demons in this one man. And this is the man that's chained. He is the man of the gatherings. It's the scene where the demons, Jesus casts the demons into the swine, and they go, they go running over the, over the hillside, and there's a sale on pork for the next month or so in the Gentile region. Now, do you remember why Jesus cast them into the pigs? It's because they asked him to. Do you remember why they asked him? They didn't want to go in the abyss. That's exactly right. They say in Matthew 8:31, "What business do we have with each other, son of God? Have you come here to torture us before the time?" And then they asked to be cast into the swine. See, they were free to roam about the earth and they don't want to be thrown in the abyss and They surely don't want to be judged ahead of time. The demons know that their time is limited, and they know judgment is coming. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing if every human being in the world knew that their time was limited and that judgment was coming? You'd probably have a lot more people repenting, wouldn't you? The demons are smarter than we are. We've also heard about this bottomless pit in Revelation 9. This is too long to put on the screen, so I want you to turn back there to Revelation 9. Because it is a parallel to what's happening here with this angel who has the key to the abyss. There's another angel that's already had the key to the abyss in Revelation chapter 9. This is at the fifth trumpet judgment. And you remember when Jesus takes the title deed of the earth, he alone is worthy to open the scroll. And he begins to unfurl the scroll and he breaks the seals. There are seven of them. And when he gets to the final seal, there are trumpets. There are seals and there are are bowls. And here is the fifth trumpet. Look at verse 1. It says, Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fall from heaven which had fallen to the earth. And the key of the bottomless pit of the Abbasas, the the pit of the abyss, literally, was given to him. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke went up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. The sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit, and out of the smoke came locusts upon the earth, and power was given to them as the scorpions of the earth have power. And they were told not to hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree. 
but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not permitted to kill anyone but to torment for five months. And their torment was like a torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. And in those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die and death flees from them. Now, here's symbolism. But it's very clear what the symbolism represents. There is an abyss. It's a... It's the abode of demons, and it is opened up, and demons are released on the earth. And John calls them, they look like locusts, and and they're able to torment. And so he says it's like a scorpion sting, and yet they're controlled. They can't kill, and they're they're able to do it for a five-month period of time. And it's so bad that people want to die, but they can't die, because even that's in God's hands. Now, I want you to notice the parallels. Someone is given the key to the bottomless pit. It's a delegated authority. Couldn't open it without the key. This time, when the gate is opened, the demons are permitted to come out and torment the earth. Now, if that's literal, meaning that the demons are released to torment, then Revelation 20 and the binding of Satan is literal as well. The same process happens in Revelation 20, but the opposite goal. Revelation 9, they're being released for the judgment of the world. Revelation 20, Satan is bound for the protection of the kingdom. He's restrained during the kingdom. I'll turn back to Revelation 20. We'll go a little farther. By the same authority... God's authority, the angel lays hold of Satan and places him in the pit and confines him there for a thousand years. There's an identified person, and then there is a specific period. It's very clear. Here's where our amillennial brothers get bound up, pun intended. There's a question about the period of time. Is this literal or is this figurative? And there is a question about when Satan is bound. Is he bound now by the cross? And is he being bound by the church and the spread of the gospel? Or is his binding in the future, as this verse, I think, seems to indicate? I think it's abundantly clear here. The chronology, you apply consistent hermeneutics and a natural reading of the book. As I already said, chapter 19, the coming of Christ, chapter 20. The kingdom, and right before the kingdom, you have the binding of Satan, and then you have the eternal heavens, the the final, final things in chapter 21. And these passages full of time references. And I would say the only reason not to read it with that chronology, the coming of Christ, the binding of Satan, and then the kingdom, is to actually avoid a premillennial position. I think that's the only natural reason why why you would interpret this strictly from a hermeneutical standpoint. There is something other than the text. There's some other uh, theological idea, construct, or, or verse that you would be reading into this. But if you, if you just read it, that's the clear chronology. There are actually six references in these six verses to the length of the millennial kingdom. Verse 2, Satan is bound for the period, the thousand years. Is that a literal period or a figurative period? Verse 3, until the thousand years were completed. Verse 4. They reigned with Christ for a thousand years. 
Verse 5, until the thousand years was completed. In verse 6, they will reign with him for a thousand years. Uh, yeah, well, I'm not sure. I think I just uh, did six references and had five numbers there, didn't I? How did I miss that? I think if you apply the same hermeneutics to this passage as the rest of Revelation, I think you conclude it's a literal thousand years. I do. Um, there's nothing in this verse or context that says it's, it's symbolic. Not only that, I think it's very clear that this binding didn't happen at the cross because of the result of verse 3. Look, if you would, at verse 3. He's bound for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were, were complete. Now, the result, you had delegated authority to open the pit and you have the chain that, that restrains and you have the angel applying that to a person, which is very clear, it's Satan. And he's put in a very clear place, which is the abyss, the bottomless pit. And he's incarcerated there. And the result of that, in verse 3, is plain as day. The result of Satan being shut and sealed over in the pit is so that he would no longer deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. And here is the... Resulting prohibition. What's the result? Satan is prohibited. Now, follow the order of this passage. Satan was not bound before the passage, right? He's laid hold of it. He is bound in the passage. And the result of that is he cannot deceive any longer. Meaning that he was deceiving, right? I mean, that's, that's the order of, of what's happening here. Now, if Satan was already bound by Christ's work on the cross... Somebody needs some not lessons. And if Christ is already reigning in his church until Revelation 20, and the kingdom has already arrived, then what do you do, as we said last time, with, with all the tribulation judgments that happens between Revelation 6 up through 18, before the Lord comes in Revelation 19? Or the loosing of Satan after the Lord arrives and the battle is, is over not only that, I think if you just look at the New Testament, the New Testament is very clear how present Satan is and how he opposes the church. He's doing much work on the earth. If anything, he's more active after the cross than, than before. You don't believe me? Just look in Congress or the Senate or any other place in Washington, right? He enters Judas... In Luke 22, 3, you remember that? He enters Judas to portray Christ. He opposes Simon Peter in Luke twenty two thirty one. 31. You remember what Jesus tells Peter? Satan wants to sift you like wheat. I prayed for you. And you say, well, that's right. That was before the cross. But there's even more after the cross. What about this one? Ananias and Sapphira. It's clearly after the cross, isn't it? Ananias and Sapphira are said to be filled with Satan when they lie to the Holy Spirit. 
But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. And Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep something, uh, keep back some of the price of the land? Now, I want you to notice here, the Jesus, or in this case, Peter, is, is not a communist or a socialist. This was Ananias and Sapphira's property. They were free to sell it. They were free not to sell it. The problem here is not that they only gave a little. The problem is that they lied about it, right? That's the problem. But Satan is clearly involved in this. Look at... Boy, this is a touchy little booger. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3 through 4. It tells us that Satan right now is active... Opposing the gospel by blinding the minds of unbelievers. If you're here tonight and you're outside of Christ, you should cry out to God and plead that He would open your eyes. Because this verse says that your mind is blinded. You're blind and you don't even know you're blind. You're with the emperor's new clothes of righteousness. The Apostle Paul says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds, the God of this world, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, just as a side note, you should not think, I mean, this verse ought to, ought to break you from the from the idea that you alone as an individual have the power to convince someone to trust Christ with your, with your own ability. Well, there's this kind of opposition going on. It takes the work of the Spirit, and very thankfully the Spirit works. And He works through means, which is you. But it's the Spirit of God who does that work. But here you see Satan again, very active. Mm, 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. So Satan is clearly at work on the earth through false teachers. He transforms himself into an angel of light. Second Corinthians eleven fourteen. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. When is he disguising himself as an angel of light? Well, right now. Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. As it's been said, when you look for the devil in the church, don't forget to look behind the pulpit. And don't forget to look in the pews. And don't forget to look in humanitarian work. And don't forget to look in all kinds of other things that seem very good that lack a biblical gospel the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. Now, what are these servants doing here? False apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. They're deceiving people. The very thing Satan is not supposed to be able to do, if Revelation 20 is symbolic, or if he's already taken place. 
And you say, well, he's able to deceive, but the church is overcoming that deception through the, the propagation of the gospel. This passage says he will not deceive the nations any longer, period. This is not a, a, a limited deception. This is no deception, is what Revelation 20 clearly says. Oh, Ephesians 2. Ah. Down, boy. Ephesians 2 clearly says he is at work right now. Passage we love very well. And you who were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. You were. This is past tense. It's talking about when you were an unbeliever. You walked according to Satan's devices, his cosmos, his teaching. And that same spirit is now currently working in unbelievers, in the sons of disobedience. You're to give thanks, you're to give praise, because that's what you used to be, and now you're not, but that's what other people still are. Can it get any plainer? Actually, it can. First Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul says, Satan hindered him, hindered his coming to the Thessalonians. 2 Timothy 2.26 says, Satan <clears throat> lays hold of people himself. This is the passage <clears throat> Pastor Stephen says he memorized whenever he first came here because we would quote it so many times in dealing with, with church matters. The servant... Of the Lord, the bond servant must not be quarrelsome, must be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, <clears throat> who grants the repentance? God grants the repentance. Where does the repentance lead? Leading to the knowledge of the truth. And what will repentance bring? That they'll come to their senses. And they'll escape from the snare of the devil who is doing some work, having been held captive by him to do his will. He looks pretty active to me. In fact, we're warned not to be ignorant of his work. First uh, <laughs> Peter 5.8 Be sober. Be vigilant. Be on alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about or prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. John Walford said this passage, instead of saying Satan is bound and unable to deceive the nations, pictures him as a lion which has been loosed, walking about roaring, seeking someone to eat. So you have filling people with lies, you have blind minds and opposing the gospel, you have directing false teachers and deceiving people, you have leading his children who are sons of disobedience, you have hindering missions work, the work of Paul, you have taking captive people to do his will, you have freely walking about the earth, making himself known, seeking someone to devour 
And that would petrify us if we did not know that there was a sovereign God who has authority over all of them. And if you want to see how sovereignty is, you go to the book of Job. So this very devil has to appear before God himself and ask permission before he can do anything. For a believer, Satan is on a chain. I can remember Brett Edwards telling the, giving the illustration. He said, if you ever walk in a yard and there's a, there's a fence outside, the, 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 the yard has a fence around it like a chain link fence. And you, you open the gate and you walk up to the, walk up the, right down the sidewalk up on the porch on the steps. And it's there that you look and see that the sign that says, beware of dog fell from the fence. That'll make you worry. And then when you look on the porch and see that there's an empty chain, now you're really going to get worried. Satan, for an unbeliever, that's the way you are in the world. God's told you to beware of the dog, but you can't see the sign because you're his child and he's off the chain. But for a believer, God puts him on a chain and he can't do a thing to you that God hasn't allowed sifted through his sovereign and good hand. And Satan has authority even on the earth, but even that is limited by God. As you can clearly see here, by God's authority, that delegated authority of Satan comes to an end. And it comes to an end. And you can see that in verse 3. Look at verse 3 again. He threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. And after these things, he must be released for a short time. And that sovereign authority is what the angel wields when he binds Satan and makes him cease his work for the millennial reign of Christ. What a wonderful time that will be. It will be a wonderful time. <laughs> uh, the work of No work of Satan anywhere on the earth. No tempter to tempt you. One of the primary features of the millennial reign of Christ, of his rule, is he'll reign in righteousness... And there will be peace because there will be no spiritual warfare, no Satan, no tempter. And that will be there for a thousand years. This will be the only period in human history in which Satan will not be at work deceiving. What he's been doing from even before the fall, he's been free to do this. And during the millennial reign, he will be bound and he will not be free to do anything until the thousand years were complete. And after these things, he'll be released for a short time. And then ultimately, he'll be thrown in the lake of fire, but we'll have to save that for, for another time. And we'll see the reign of Christ with his saints in verses 4 through 6 the next time we open Revelation. Let's pray.